if you would, to Psalm 131. We only hardly touched on this last week, and uh, because I had all the other stuff on my mind, to be perfectly candid with you, I don't remember how hard we touched it. I know we didn't do, I know we didn't do much. Um, so I'm sort of going to start all over again. I'm going to start by reading the psalm. Uh, very short psalm, very powerful psalm, and. Um, one of those things that it's, it's very easy. If you read through the Psalms, I read through the Psalms regularly. I think probably most of you have it sometime or another. And I don't know um, what it is about a really short Psalm or a very familiar Psalm. The tendency is just to read right over it. You know, it's three verses. And you, you read it and you move to the next one rather than really slowing down, jumping in, thinking about what it's saying, and, and, and dig deep. And... Um, I'm going to help us a little bit do that in these uh, three verses. I'll read out of NASB, Psalm 131. My Bible has at the heading, this is not inspired, childlike trust in the, in the Lord. Um, the inscription there says, A song of a sense of David, or by David. And um, the psalm begins here in verse 1 by saying, O Lord, and while I'm just going to read this, I am going to make the comment here, notice that it says, O Lord. Immediately, that should trigger you to recognize that this is David, and David's not talking to you and me. And at this point, he's not talking to the people of Israel. Jump all the way down with your eyes to verse 3. What does it say there? Oh, Israel. Okay, those are big differences, and those are huge in our understanding. So, oh, God. All right, David's talking to God. Oh, Israel. David's now talking to the nation. All in three verses. And we're going to see that verse 2, the middle, is the, is the hinge point. So, um, I want to make that... Note, because when you read verse 1, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, or you should be, or I, I should say I at least did, how in the world could I ever say this to anybody, let alone say it to God? But David's doing that, and so we're going to look at that a little bit. So, verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor have I involved myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my heart like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I read a number of commentaries, and um, I want to read to you uh, a portion of Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce. Um, this isn't word for word. This is, um, if I can do this without it being blasphemous to him, this is 
Boyce Brody, okay? So Brody took Boyce and he changed it a little bit so it would be more readable for us, but it's basically the, the Boyce commentary. It's not real long, but I found it to be very helpful, so I wanted to read it to you. It's hard to imagine anyone spending three years with Jesus Christ and still wanting to be important instead of just letting Jesus be important. But the disciples did, and we do too, even after years of exposure to Jesus' teaching and walking with him by faith. Matthew tells us something along these lines that happened after Jesus' transfiguration. The Lord was healing the sick and teaching and attracting so much attention that the disciples were impressed with themselves just for hanging around with Jesus. And sometimes that happens, you know. I, I, I can feel important because I'm, I'm with somebody. Um, you know, I know somebody. Um, wow, the mayor spoke to me. The chief of police spoke to me and called me by name. Uh, you know, what, what, whatever. We have that tendency. And they're feeling pretty good about the fact that they're walking with this guy that's healing and, and calming the waters and feeding the thousands. And, of course, they just experienced what they did up on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's found in Matthew um, 18. They were sure Jesus was going to set up his kingdom very quickly. So they began to wonder which one of them would have the most important position in the kingdom. Maybe you remember uh, that from the story. Because they're coming down off the mountain. And when they're coming down off the mountain, even after being rebuked up on the mountain, they're having an argument with each other. And uh, Jesus, of course, hears the argument. And they have the audacity, if you can imagine, in Matthew 18, 1, to ask Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Sort of jockeying for position. I'm not sure what they expected the answer to be, but Jesus called a little child and had him stand next to him and then Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you change or unless you repent or unless you be converted and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whosoever humbles himself like a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You find this in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. That's a very serious answer he gave, wasn't it? And it helps give us a clue here when we look at this little psalm in verse 1. In order to be saved from sin and enter into God's kingdom, they must become like little children. And in order to become like little children... They had, to, they had to repent. They had to humble themselves instead of jockeying for the top 
dog position. They would have to back down in their heart and repent and submit to the Lordship of Christ. We just recently got through looking at pride is the greatest danger and humility is the only answer, didn't we? And, and, and we see this shouting at us in the very first verse of this psalm. Psalm 131 is a psalm about humble trust in God which should follow for those who've been saved. In the same sense, it's a, it's a pilgrim psalm, after all. A, a song that the pilgrim sang is their ascending of David. But the pilgrimage involves for us a spiritual journey of grace. It leads not to an imaginary or mystical city of Shangri-La, but to a real city whose builder and maker is God. And so this psalm lays that out for us in a very compact fashion, and you have to dig it apart a little bit and think about it. A very simple outline, I don't have this in your handout, but if you wanted to write it down, is uh, the humble yourself before God, verse 1. You humble yourself before God. You bow your heart. That's what verse 1 is saying. You must humble your heart. Oh God, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things that are too difficult to me. David had humbled himself. David had taken and set aside anything to do with self and said, without God I can do nothing, I am nothing, it's Christ and Christ alone. And that's what we must do as we think about preparing our hearts in our relationship with God. Second thing is hush yourself before God. First you humble yourself before God, but next you hush yourself before God. Verse 2, you, you have to quiet your heart down. That's why I chose that song. I have to be still. Be still, my soul. Judy and I visited Margie Harton, undoubtedly for the last time on earth, the other night. And because I've immersed myself in this psalm and everything that flows from it. Of course, I had to be still my soul. Well, we all know I can't sing, so I, I didn't sing. But the last thing I did, we did, with Margie, is we read her verse 3. Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on. When we shall be forever with the Lord. May I say right now, that hour is hastening on for her, but it's hastening on for you and me. And not a single person here that like that, that's what it will seem like, will stand before the living God. Either he will be your judge or he will be your savior. And there's no middle ground. I don't care what your age is. The Lord says... 
and generally speaking, through Moses, Psalm 90, we might look at that in a bit this summer, that your days might be 70. If I give you strength, they might be 80. But listen, you better use wisdom and number your days and apply them because life is brief. It's like a vapor, it says in James. And this psalm says that the hour is hastening when we shall be forever with the Lord. But what about that time, if you're a believer? When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow for God loves purest joys restored. Won't that be wonderful? Be still, my soul. When change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. We hush ourselves. We, we lift our eyes from the troubles of this world to the God who has prepared everything for us for our future and who is going to give us grace as we ascend to that great city of God for whatever we face. And as David did quiet his heart, put away all pride, humbled himself totally and completely, as, as he did that, and humbled himself before the Lord, he was then able to quiet and hush his heart, and, and then coming out of that is hope. Your, your, your hope is renewed. So you, you humble yourself before God, you hush yourself before God, and then you hope in God. You put your hope back there. You, you recognize there's, there isn't any sense of putting your hope in life here. There is no sense in putting your hope in a preacher or in a car or in a job, in another person, because all of that is temporal and it's all fading away, but there's only one place to put your hope, and that is in Jesus Christ. And, and, and we don't exclaim it to ourselves when, we've, when we have quieted ourselves and renewed ourselves in the Lord. Pretty soon we want to shout that to the nations, don't we? We want to shout that to the neighbors. We want to shout it to everybody. I know it's hard, but hope in God. And so David's doing that here. And, and you, you hope in God because you've renewed your heart. You've renewed your, your look. You've renewed your, your gaze through the power of the Spirit. He, is, he has renewed your faith. And so we see that um, in this wonderful psalm. It's the 12th psalm. I'm in the handout now, right in the middle of the first page. It's the 12th psalm in this series. Uh, it's a him that confesses this simple trust. Um, David is the, is the noted author. There's some, you know, discussions about that. It isn't worth looking at. Um, the word, the Hebrew word of or by can be translated different ways. And so there's a few uh, of the commentaries where the guys are really... Um, post-exile um, um, fanatics. And so they somehow think that this psalm was not written by David, but about David by someone after 
the return from exile, but there's very, very few people think that. But in case you happen to jump into some psalms, I want to at least acknowledge that that ambiguity, whatever that word is, is there. Um, the psalm is strategically placed uh, after Psalm 130. And as we'll look here in just a moment, this, in Psalm 130, the person who knows forgiveness in this previous psalm is then called on to exercise childlike faith in Psalm 131. Uh, the two psalms have a, have a sweet link, and, and I want to point that out to you. So have your Bible open, Psalm 131. We're going to look a little bit at Psalm 30 as well. Both psalms end the same way, telling Israel and us by extension to put our hope in the Lord. Look at Psalm 130, verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him an abundant redemption. Look, all of us go through times when we just fall short of the glory of God, don't we? I mean, we go through periods of time where we think, can I ask the Lord to forgive me one more time? And you, you probably have this going through your head. Well, he told Peter to forgive 70 times 7, but I think I've already exceeded that on this particular besetting sin. And, and, and if you listen to the evil one, and if you listen to your flesh, you, you, you somehow think that God is going to forsake you. If you've been saved by grace, it's all by grace. He knows our frame. He knows we're dust. He wants us to flee to the cross. He wants us to flee to him. He wants us to rest and rejoice in his loving kindness, his kessed mercy that's extended to us forever and ever and ever that moved our sin from us. Yes, even those besetting sins as far as the east is from the west. And he's chosen in his mercy to remember them no more. I need that, don't you? I need that reminder on a real regular basis. And you can't get to that point if you don't first confess you can do nothing on yourself and humble yourself like in verse 1. But then we quiet our hearts before the Lord, as we'll see, and renew our minds and our hearts and hope is born again for the believer. And so Israel is reminded in, we're reminded in both Psalm 130 and 131, there is hope no place else except for Christ. There is no other person, place, or thing to hope in. A mature believer in humility, verse 1 does not lean on his own understanding, that should still say verse 1, please make that change, but stills and quiets his heart before the Lord, that should say verse 2. That's what we should do in maturity. Are we always mature? No. But this is a psalm of maturity. And so I should read this psalm and I should ask myself, is that, is that my heart? Is this how I respond. The words of personal testimony are at the emotional center of each psalm or are alike in substance and form. In each case, the lines embody the psalm's most powerful image, and, and it's repeated for emphasis. And, and I want you to see that. 
First, I want you to look at verse 6 in Psalm 130. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman in the morning. Indeed, more than a watchman in the morning. We know in poetry and when you're studying the Hebrew poetry, uh, and it's just very similar in Proverbs, things are repeated for emphasis. Sometimes they're said in different ways. Sometimes they're said in exactly the same way, but it's for emphasis. And so we see here in Psalm 130 that my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman in the morning, indeed more than the watchman in the morning. How many of you have ever been in the military? Okay. You know what it's like to pull guard duty, don't you? Do you remember all the way back to your basic training? I can remember my basic training at Fort, Bliss, at Fort Bliss, Texas, and then taking us out to White Sands, New Mexico, like a 120-mile bus ride. And you were in the middle of nowhere, and it's the black of night, and they, they stick you at a stupid outpost. And, and you know you're not at war. I, you know they're not, but, but they're training you. And, and they stick you out there and, uh, at 3 a.m., because you're going to pull the 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. watch. And they drop you off and then that vehicle leads. And, and you know full well they got cameras and spies and what have you because you're being tested. And it's so black you can put your hand like that and you can't see your face. At least for me in the area where I was, you're wondering how many snakes and scorpions and what have you are going to crawl up your pant leg. And, and, and you're given a, a thing to watch in, in, a, in a perimeter, and, and you're going to guard that from three hours, from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., and then they're going to come back and pick you up. You know how long 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock is in that setting? It's about seven days. Yeah, it's eerie. And what's the great relief when you begin to see what? When you begin to see light, the sun starts coming up. You see that faint little bit of light. That's the believer's great hope, isn't he? He waits on the Lord and he's looking for that light, for that answer, for that encouragement. Don't we wait on the Lord with that kind of anticipation? And, that, and that's what David is, not David, the, uh, the psalmist in 130 is, is saying here. You, you hope with that kind of hope. Did I know as a watchman all those years ago that the sun would come up? I knew more than anything else that the sun would come up. And so my whole experience was waiting for the sun to come up with a certainty. No matter what happens in these three hours, the sun's going to come up. And when it does, I'll be okay. Listen, folks, that's what this psalm is saying. When the sun comes up, we'll be okay. Jesus is coming again, amen? It's going to be okay. But we've got to be like night watchmen, waiting for those certain promises that God has given in his word. And when we do that, and when we begin to see that sun, we'll, we'll, we'll hope with explanation. Not explanation, with the other word begins with X. No, I even wanted the other one. Exclamation! Exclamation! Doris, I need you standing here right here beside me to tell me what words to use. 
And so that's that, that, that image that's so powerful in Psalm 130, but I want you to see how powerful the, the image is in Psalm 131, because I think it's even more powerful. Verse 2 says in Psalm 131, Surely my, have, I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. We get children onto the bottle pretty quick here compared to then and in this writing. It would have been very normal for a child to be weaned between three and four. That, that's hard for us to wrap our arms around, I understand. But that, that is the context, and that is the context that this is being said. And, and you do know, if you have ever breastfed or you have been married to someone who breastfeeds, or you have even been exposed to someone who is, does breastfeed, and the baby wants to eat, and we're not at the place or the time when the baby can eat. Is it a pleasant experience? That child screams and hollers and kicks and fuss, and you can rock, you can try to stick the binky in. He don't want the binky. He don't want a toy. He don't want nothing except what? Mama and what mama can give him. Uh, do, do you see that's what the psalmist is saying here? He said, I'm a weaned child. I don't need God for what he'll give me. I've matured. I've grown to the fact that I don't need to have answer to prayer. I don't have to be delivered from this circumstance. I don't have to have what God will give me. It's enough that I just have God. That's what a weaned child is. It's enough just to be close to mama. It's enough to feel her warmth and to know her love and to enjoy her fellowship. I don't have to have anything from mom. I've been weaned from that. And God wants his people to be weaned from having to get things from him to an enjoying a relationship with him. And that's what David's saying. Do you see that? Isn't that beautiful? Oh, God is a gracious God. And there's no mother here that doesn't love her child and gives her mother as a mother gives her what he needs. But she wants to be loved for who she is. And God wants to be loved for who he is. And if you really want to grow in your faith, we have to sit here and think about how can I renew my relationship and my love for God for who he is, not what he does for me. And that's, that's the message of the psalm. And, and, and when that experience happens, then our soul is quieted. And, and the circumstances around us don't become so critical because I'm with God. God's holding me. He's my God. He adopted me into his family. I'm his, and he's going to take everything. We used to sing a little song, In my Father's house, everything will be all right. And we're able to rest no matter what the circumstance is. And in that rest, we'll have a, a joyful enthusiasm 
to share with other people about our great God that they might repent of their sin and they might receive by faith the salvation that he's offered, that they too could have peace and quiet in the midst of any circumstance. If you're not saved here today, I, I, I would plead for you to trust and obey. You have a heavenly Father that loves you and he wants to care for you. And if you're like me sometimes, I got to have that answer, Dad. I got to have that answer, dear Heavenly Father. And sometimes I just need to rest and say, you know, the only thing I really need is you. The only thing I need is you and just rest in him. Are you with me? All God's people said, amen. Give us that kind of rest. You are dismissed. We're going to look at the practical outworking of that next week and talk about it. So.